Thank you for so speedily winding up those individual conversations, which are so valuable and important to an audience like you all. Uh, I'm pleased to be here to have the opportunity to introduce to you our keynote luncheon speaker, who has just come fresh from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, where, Steve, we got early reports of great successes, uh, and we're pleased and delighted to have you. It's a special pleasure for me because I've known Steve a long time. Steve, a graduate of Georgetown, uh, has served as ambassador to Lithuania and to Poland, had several tours in Poland. Uh, he's now a coordinator for implementation uh, of the Iran Agreement. Uh, and Steve, we're looking forward to having you tell us what that means uh, and maybe what it doesn't mean. Steve was also for a while acting assistant secretary for political military affairs in the State Department and executive secretary of the department, a job I had some, some familiarity with, uh, and essentially it means making sure the Secretary of State does his job. So it's a very important job. Uh, Steve has also served elsewhere around the world, uh, in addition uh, to Europe, in Indonesia particularly, where he worked for Bob Gelbart, who is sitting here ready to mark your uh, speech uh, for the press. Uh, no, Bob is uh, highly enthusiastic, Steve, is, I was in terms of the opportunity I had to meet you out there. Uh, my uh, sense is that uh, Steve has perhaps one of the most demanding uh, and potentially one of the most important jobs uh, in government today and certainly in the State Department. And Steve, we're delighted and pleased you're in the job. We're very, very much anxious to hear what you have to say. Uh, and obviously with an audience of this distinction and with the degree of expertise and interest, you can expect maybe a few questions at the end, and I hope you'll be able to have time to take those on. Uh, but please warmly welcome with me Steve Mull, uh, our uh, keynote luncheon speaker today. Steve? Thank you uh, very much, Tom, uh, and uh, thanks uh, to you and Frank Wisner and uh, to Bill Lures and uh, all the members of the uh, Iran group who've been such a great source of support for this, this really important foreign policy uh, challenge that, that we've been uh, grappling with for many years. And also to the Atlantic Council, it's, it's always great. I feel like I'm home when I'm here uh, because having spent so much time uh, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe over the course of my career, the Atlantic Council's always been such a great source of support and partnership uh, up until, you know, while I was in Poland for the past three years, uh, I really much, very much enjoyed uh, working uh, with Fred Kemp and his whole team in putting together the Wrocław Global Forum every year. So it's, it's a real great pleasure to be here. And Tom, it's, it's really nice uh, see you again. You know, you probably don't remember this, but the very first time I met you, uh, you came to South Africa when I was, uh, we had actually apartheid in our political section during the apartheid years, and I was in charge of the black political section, uh, and uh, you came to visit just after uh, Walter Sisulu and some other people from uh, South Africa were, uh, uh, from the ANC were released. Uh, you came in your capacity as UN ambassador, and uh, it, it was amazing. We went straight from the airport to see Walter Sisulu, you said, okay, what are the top five things I need to say? I told them all. You said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we sat down uh, with Mr. Sisulu, and you delivered those five points much better than I ever uh, could have without any preparation at all. So I thought, when I, when I grow up, that's somebody I want to be like. Uh, so thank you uh, very much. Uh, I've been uh, working in the Foreign Service for, uh, for almost 34 years now. And uh, shortly after uh, Secretary Kerry and Wendy Sherman concluded 
the uh, JCPOA uh, last July, uh, he asked me to come back from my last assignment in Poland to take charge of implementing uh, the deal uh, within the US government. And so in that job, I'm leading a really excellent team of colleagues uh, within the, the State Department, but as well as uh, many other colleagues uh, from throughout the government, uh, from the Energy Department, from the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, to make sure that we do a perfect job in implementing this agreement. In fact, the first day that uh, my uh, job was announced, uh, Secretary, uh, rather, uh, uh, President Obama uh, came over to the State Department to thank the negotiating team uh, for doing such a great job in concluding this deal, and he pulled me aside. He said, Steve, you can't make a single mistake in this job, <laughs> which I've never really quite started a job that way before, so I knew uh, the pressure was, uh, was, was going to go on. But he feels that way very strongly. And as to why, because if we're successful in this deal, not only is it gonna make us and our friends in, in, in the region uh, a lot safer and a lot more secure, it opens up all sorts of new opportunities for our diplomacy that I hope we'll be able to exploit as we go forward. Now I know that all of you, many of you in the audience have been working on this issue for a very long time and that you were instrumental in the very active public debate uh, that took place about this deal, both during the negotiations and since we concluded them this summer. And we're very grateful, uh, certainly within the State Department on behalf of Secretary Kerry, for all the attention you've paid to this issue and for the work that, that is still to come. We're gonna keep counting on you to help us with this. Uh, the administration continues to engage Iran on a host of issues unrelated to this deal including as part of the multilateral diplomatic effort on Syria, but also this continuing problems and the threat we face from Iran's support for terrorism, uh, its human rights violations, its efforts to destabilize the region, its ballistic missile program, and the list goes on. But my job is strictly focused on the critical task of the JCPOA and making sure that it achieves its one crucial objective, and that's preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. When fully implemented, the JCPOA will dramatically scale back Iran's nuclear program and provide unprecedented monitoring and verification tools to ensure that it is exclusively peaceful as it moves forward. We're making good progress towards this objective already. October 18th marked adoption day under the JCPOA when the deal formally came into effect and all the participants began making the necessary arrangements for implementation of their JCPOA commitments. This included Iran's informing the International Atomic Energy Agency that it would provisionally apply the additional protocol and fully implement modified code 3.1, which provides for early declaration of nuclear facilities before they are built starting on implementation day. These two mechanisms alone will ensure the international community has much greater insight into Iran's nuclear program than it's ever had before. The P5 plus one and Iran also outlined the plan for redesigning the Arak heavy water research reactor so that it would not be able to produce weapons grade plutonium as it does now. And the United States and European Union took actions to be ready to lift nuclear related sanctions when we reach implementation day, which is the next major milestone in the JCPOA. That day will occur only after the IAEA verifies that Iran has completed all of the nuclear steps outlined in the JCPOA. These are all the technical steps that push Iran's breakout time to at least a year from the current estimate of less than 90 days. 
At that time, Iran will receive, and only at that time, will Iran receive sanctions relief from the US, EU, and UN-related nuclear sanctions. The timing for reaching implementation day is primarily within Iran's control. And I'm sure you've seen Iranian officials speculate publicly about when they're going to be able to complete all these technical steps. But we really can't predict uh, when it's going to occur. It's up to them to perform all of the tasks they committed to do, and it's up to the IAEA to verify that they have done so beyond a shadow of a doubt. Iran, though, has been working to fulfill its commitments and has made tangible progress on a number of them. For example, Iran has begun dismantling its uranium enrichment infrastructure by removing thousands of centrifuges and transferring them for storage under continuous IAEA surveillance. It has already removed more than 5,000 of them, of its over 19,000 machines, and it's likely to move quickly to remove the rest in the coming weeks. Iran is also making progress on reducing its stockpile of various forms of enriched uranium to no more than 300 kilograms of up to 3.67% enriched material, primarily by shipping a significant amount of such material outside of Iran, while diluting the remaining excess to the level of natural uranium or below. Commercial contracts are in place for Iran to ship its enriched uranium stockpiles to Russia, and we expect this material, about 25,000 pounds of materials enriched up to 20% low enriched uranium, could leave Iran as soon as the end of this month. This step alone will dramatically lengthen Iran's breakout time. When it comes to the plutonium path, Iran must also remove and render inoperable the existing calandria, a new word for me, it means the core of the Iraq reactor by filling it with concrete before implementation day. These actions will effectively cut off Iran's ability to produce weapons-grade plutonium. Relatedly, Iran and the P5 plus one are continuing our work to advance the redesign and reconstruction of that reactor, and the P5 plus one has been working to set up a group to facilitate this project. That group will start working after the new year, and that group is to ensure that as the reactor is redesigned and modernized, it will not have the capability uh, to produce weapons-grade plutonium. Regarding the possible military dimensions, or PMD, of Iran's past nuclear program, an issue I know all of you, as have we been focused on, I'm sure you saw this week that the IAEA Board of Governors adopted by consensus a resolution addressing the Director General's recent report on PMD. This resolution, submitted by the P5 plus one, turns the Board's focus from confirming what we already knew about Iran's past weapons-relevant nuclear activities toward fully implementing the GC JCPOA going forward, which, as I mentioned, will give the IAEA much better tools for deterring and detecting weapons-related activities in the future should they occur. The PMD report confirmed what we and the rest of the international community has long known, that Iran had a structured nuclear weapons program up until 2003 and that there are no indications of it continuing today. This candid assessment gives us further confidence that the IAEA will perform its duties related to the JCPOA vigorously. We also continue to work closely with the IAEA as it makes preparations to implement the JCPOA's unprecedented monitoring and verification provisions of Iran's entire nuclear program. The IAEA will have continuous monitoring of all of Iran's key declared nuclear facilities, including its uranium mills and its centrifuge production facilities, a first for the IAEA. 
These measures will give us increased confidence that Iran is not diverting material or equipment to a covert program. We've always said that this deal isn't based on trust, but on an intense verification of measurable, concrete facts on the ground in Iran. And that's why we're working so closely with the IAEA to make sure it has everything it needs to do this critical job going forward. Meanwhile, we're continuing to engage our international partners on other matters pertaining to implementation of the JCPOA. Given we believe very strongly that this agreement is in our and our partners' national security interest, we're talking to a number of other countries about progress on implementation and what's coming down the road. With that, I'm happy to stop talking for now and uh, look forward to hearing your comments and taking your questions. And thanks again to everybody for coming uh, here today and for all the work that you're doing on this issue. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Steve, very much. I want to um, take the opportunity as moderator just to ask one small question, the usual kind of question you ask everybody who's doing a tough job. What is your biggest problem in the weeks ahead as you see it? Uh, the biggest problem in, in the weeks ahead, we are really at a crunch point. The Iranians in the past couple of weeks, Tom, have uh, mentioned that they anticipate that they will be able to complete uh, every step to which they've committed uh, by uh, the middle of January. I think uh, uh, President Rouhani most recently said he expects it to be completed uh, at the latest by January 22nd. Uh, it's up to them uh, to decide when they can do all of this, and the fact that they are doing it uh, rather quickly than many expected, I think is uh, we have a, a challenge to make sure uh, that every step is verified perfectly. Uh, and uh, we have regular contacts with, uh, our, uh, with the leadership and experts of the IAEA to make sure that they're going to be able to do that. But there's a lot of moving pieces that we'll have to stay on top of in the coming weeks. Uh, for example, as I mentioned, by the end of this month, uh, we expect about 25,000 pounds of enriched uranium is going to be leaving uh, Iran. We need to make sure that that gets out and is safeguarded appropriately. We need to make, that the, make sure that the uh, Iraq reactor is disabled, as Iran has promised to. We need to make sure that the IAEA has facilities at every one of Iran's nuclear uh, spots uh, from which they'll be able to work and to do their job. Uh, we need to make sure that the centrifuges are all removed, that were promised to be removed and, uh, and placed into storage. So uh, any one of these uh, is uh, a fairly easy thing to verify. Having it all happen at once is going to make sure, it's going to require a lot of attention, uh, especially from the IAEA, but also uh, from us in our oversight capacity. From your talk with the Senate, do you have any sense that there is still a strong view that they should do all possible to undermine the agreement, remove it, get rid of it, force you uh, not to, in fact, comply with your portion of the agreement? I would say that the major theme of uh, my time with the Senate this morning was their concern that uh, not so much by what's happening in terms of the implementation process of this agreement, but more broadly when we look at things like uh, Iran's uh, most recent uh, violation of the UN Security Council Resolution 1929 by conducting uh, a ballistic missile launch back in October, uh, that um, by not having swift reactions uh, to that, by not having uh, reactions to uh, their continued detention of American citizens, by not having uh, strong reactions to uh, 
their, uh, this is in their words, not mine, uh, to uh, the situation in Syria, uh, that, uh, uh, that it's created an atmosphere of permissiveness. Um, that we d don't agree with that. Uh, there's a very strong sanctions regime. Iran is one of the most heavily sanctioned countries. Earth. Uh, and uh, all of the authorities, uh, whether it's for terrorism or regional destabilization or uh, ballistic missile activity, uh, uh, support for terrorism, all of these authorities are going to continue to be, uh, uh, to be, to be exercised. The floor is now open for your questions. I have a hand way in the back. I can't see who you are. Stand up, please, on that side. Got it. Thank you. Would, the, would you please identify yourself and tell us what organization you may be affiliated with? So it's Emily Meredith with Energy Intelligence. And my question is just, you know, what would you say to somebody who says, look, the non-nuclear sanctions are so complicated that... Would you hold the microphone a little closer? Sorry. Yeah. Who says that the non-nuclear sanctions are so complicated that banks are going to be nervous, non-U.S. banks are going to be nervous about doing anything in Iran, and then that in turn is going to sort of could compromise the JCPOA? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, uh, that's a very good question, and something that I know um, the uh, Iranians are also very much uh, concerned about as they look to benefit from sanctions relief as quickly as possible. Uh, that's why in the agreement uh, that we negotiated, uh, we agreed together with our uh, European Union friends uh, that we would make uh, issue guidance as clear as possible about what's allowed under the new circumstances and what's not going to be allowed under the new circumstances. So in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to have dozens of pages of, uh, of guidance that have been carefully coordinated with uh, uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Control at the Treasury Department, State Department lawyers, and so forth, to make absolutely clear uh, what is allowed uh, under the new uh, circumstances and what, uh, and, and what won't be. And that, that will be a growing document as businesses have questions, as I'm sure Adam Zubin, uh, my colleague, uh, mentioned to you earlier this morning, um, please, they, they should be in touch uh, with OFAC uh, uh, to make sure that they understand exactly what's, uh, uh, what, what, what they are permitted uh, to do. As with any new arrangement, I think once we get a few weeks or months under uh, our belt, that uh, we'll be able to, it will become clearer, people will get a clear idea of what, uh, uh, of what they're uh, allowed to do. And I should stress that you know, we're not looking uh, to get in the way or block legitimate business activity that uh, uh, the, the, the sanctions relief will offer uh, to uh, mostly foreign, but some, in some cases, American companies as well. Uh, Barbara Slavin, please. Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, there's some legislation that has been passed in the House that would uh, interfere with the visa waiver authority for Europeans and others who would travel to Iran as well as Syria, Iraq, and so on. Has the administration taken a position on this yet, and are you concerned that this would be a violation of the JCPOA? Thank you. Uh, I'm familiar uh, with the uh, uh, with the legislation. I, I don't know if uh, the white uh, it's become part of the omnibus resolution that uh, uh, I assume that the uh, uh, that the White House is going to sign. The president will sign. Uh, I, I, I'm not aware that uh, the White House has spoken on that particular provision. But already, uh, the prospect of the passage of that legislation has prompted some to express concern uh, that it uh, could be a violation of the JCPOA. I'm, I'm not sure uh, we're ready to buy that argument necessarily uh, because the, the part of the JCPOA 
that critics of this legislation make reference to is that, that, that part of it in which all the parties agreed that it would not take, that they would not take actions intended to disrupt the economic activity uh, that will be allowed to Iran after sanctions are relieved. So the intent of uh, the, the modifications to the visa waiver program uh, are clearly not to disrupt uh, uh, economic trade with Iran. It's about uh, uh, protecting our borders. And of course, people will debate, you know, does it effectively protect our borders or not? But that's not the intent of, uh, of, of this new legislation, as it's been explained to me. I've just come from Poland. I mean, some of our best friends in the world, like Poland, are, are, don't take advantage of the visa waiver program. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, categorize whether one needs a visa to travel to the United States or not as something that's you know, critical to foreign countries' economic interests or not. They just need to apply for a visa uh, to be able to do what, uh, what they do. Uh, but given the extremely strong support uh, that uh, this legislation seems to have uh, in the Congress, uh, it does seem that uh, it will uh, likely pass in the coming days. Although, interestingly, uh, at the uh, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee this morning, senators from both sides uh, were wondering aloud uh, if uh, you know, perhaps they need to take another look at some of the intent of that. So it, it, it seems... That, that, that's right. The Senate has, has not yet. You're, you're absolutely right. So, so this is still being, it's, it's still being discussed. And, and uh, the, the senators, again, from both sides of the aisle seemed uh, very interested in the issue about taking a closer look at it. Frank Wisner. Uh, <coughs> Frank Wisner from the law firm of Squire Patton Boggs. Um, <coughs> Mr. Ambassador, thank you for a terrific presentation. All of us have followed your good work and the heated debate that preceded it. Part of it we recognize was the extreme concern of the State of Israel about the danger that Israel would be in as a result of an agreement with Iran on the behalf of the P5 plus one. A recent mission to Israel, including Tom Pickering and others, continued to emphasize the fact that the Israeli government regards Iran as a primary source of concern to Israel, her security, perhaps the greatest of any that the government currently identifies. Do you see that abating? How do we foresee dealing with Israeli concerns? How do we see managing those concerns so that they don't undercut the purposes and direction of our own diplomacy and our ability to carry out the terms of the JCPOA? Uh, thanks, uh, Ambassador Wisner. I think we start from the assumption that uh, regardless of the at times very heated, very emotional debate that characterized U.S.-Israeli uh, relations uh, on uh, the question of this deal as it was being negotiated, uh, despite all of that, we share a common strategic objective of limiting Iran's ability to weaponize its nuclear program uh, in ways that could threaten the, uh, the security of Israel as well as uh, all of our friends. So there's no doubt that we share that strategic objective. Clearly, there have been different, differing opinions on whether what, what the right tactics are to, uh, uh, to, to meet that goal. Uh, but I have to say that since the JCPOA survived uh, the congressional review process, and that's probably the right verb uh, to use, uh, that uh, the, um, uh, I think uh, Isra senior Israeli officials, and I've met with a number of them uh, in the few months I've had this job, have said that, look, 
you know, they wouldn't have gone this way with this deal, but they realize it's a fact of life. This deal is going forward. It's being implemented. And they've signaled to us at a very high level uh, that uh, they would like to work with us in making sure that the implementation is effective. Uh, so we've had numerous encounters. Uh, I know the White House has, the Defense Department has, uh, and we at State have as well. Uh, in beginning that dialogue, I think it's going to be very active uh, and, uh, and very constructive. And it certainly has been so far. Questions? Thank you. It's uh, Dana Marshall with Transnational Strategy Group. Thank you, Tom and Ambassador Mo, for this. Um, a lot of questions one, one could ask, but maybe I'll give you one that you might be able to answer more easily, and that's at the, the sub-federal level uh, legislation. Um, there are some forces on the anti-deal side that have already suggested that that can be a route uh, to uh, sort of put these impediments that Tom was talking about. I wonder to what extent, maybe a couple of sub-questions on that, to what extent do you think the Iranians understand our federal system? Uh, should, let's say, one state put in very, or implement very tough legislation, even implementing existing legislation, would they see that as a derogation from what we've said? And what about the um, ability or, or the desire of the federal government to work with the states to try to avoid that kind of a, of a conflict? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, a very good question, and, and you may know that within the agreement itself, there is a provision uh, that we would, uh, in fact, uh, keep our state and local authorities briefed in the United States on the implications of this agreement, explaining why we concluded this agreement and how it's, uh, it's going to work uh, going forward. And so we're planning to do uh, exactly uh, uh, that as we get into, uh, as we get into uh, next year. Uh, we've been very clear, uh, my uh, colleagues uh, uh, who negotiated this deal were very clear throughout the process uh, that we do have a federal system. And I think you'll see, that I think this uh, uh, drives our uh, Iranian negotiating partners a little crazy sometimes, but sprinkled throughout the agreement, uh, it's very clear that, that we will do these things consistent with our federal laws, consistent with U.S. government uh, uh, capabilities and authorities. Uh, and so we're, we're not trying to hide uh, that it is, uh, America can be a pretty complex place to do business uh, because of uh, the special features of our federal system. Uh, and so I, I, I don't think uh, the Iranian side is, uh, is surprised by that. Obviously, uh, they would like uh, state and local authorities uh, that have similar sanctions regimes to follow in the steps uh, of, uh, of, of what the federal government is planning to do uh, with implementation day. Uh, but you know, we, will ex we will continue to explain to them when they don't understand why it may not be working that way. Equal opportunity. I'll take a question on this side of the aisle, please. P please, right down here in front. They'll bring the microphone to you. Thank you. Thank you. Kelsey Davenport with the Arms Control Association. Thank you so much for your remarks. We hear a lot about what Iran is doing on the nuclear side for the commitments it has to achieve before implementation day, but there's still the civil nuclear cooperation areas. Can you tell us if anything is happening, particularly in the nuclear security and safety areas, or if that's, if that's to happen after implementation day? 
Um, there are a number of uh, a number of governments uh, who have uh, uh, contacted us to uh, express. I, I don't want to name them because uh, I don't want to commit them to anything. Uh, but there's a, a lot of interest among countries with a lot of expertise uh, in uh, in nuclear power and nuclear safety issues uh, who are very eager. Uh, first of all, I'm sure they're sensing commercial opportunities. Uh, but secondly, just in terms of security, making sure that as Iran's civil nuclear program goes forward, it does so in a secure uh, in a secure way. And I think there's a, a, a fairly broad and responsible international community uh, willing to help on that. Uh, we've been uh, cautioning that uh, uh, that you know before implementation day, uh, you know we're not really going to be in a position uh, to support that. But once uh, Iran meet arrives at implementation day, uh, the agreement is very clear that uh, uh, not only are we not going to block, but in fact we're very supportive uh, of efforts, and this is all the parties of the agreement, uh, to promote uh, cooperation on civil nuclear uh, issues, especially on safety issues. Straight down here. Uh, forgive me, I came in a bit late, so if you've touched on this, I apologize. But um, we heard this morning that you had said something in testimony about the question of whether the U.S. would pursue enforcement of U.N. Security Council resolution on missiles. This has become contentious. Could you tell us what is likely to happen with U.S. pursuit of enforcement on that issue? No, uh, Trudy Rubin from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Okay. No, thanks. Uh, uh, thanks very much uh, uh, for that question, Trudy. The, uh, uh, I, I, there shouldn't be any doubt that the United States is uh, strongly committed uh, to enforcing uh, all of the provisions of UN Security Council resolutions. And in fact, when we were able to confirm uh, that Iran had launched a, uh, a medium-range ballistic missile on October 10th uh, earlier this year, <clears throat> we were swift and having Ambassador Power stand up in the Security Council to say that uh, along with our partners from Germany, the UK, and France, uh, to make clear that this seemed to us a, a clear violation of UN Security Council Resolution 1929. Uh, and that was referred uh, to the panel of experts to make a determination. This week they reported back through the Sanctions Committee to the Security Council that in fact it was a violation uh, of, uh, of, of that Security Council Resolution and Ambassador Power called for consequences for that violation. So we are working with the Security Council. Ambassador Power called on the Security Council uh, to take action uh, to uh, exact penalties for those violations. Uh, we don't know if we will succeed in getting that through the Security Council. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we have substantial unilateral authorities uh, to impose additional sanctions uh, for violations of uh, commitments um, and, and requirements under on, on Iran's ballistic missile uh, program. Uh, I'm not um, in, in a position to say what those consequences uh, will, will be, but I, I can assure you that we're actively uh, considering what those consequences will be. Yes, back here, please. Ali Dodd-Muffi Nezam, West Asia Council. Thank you, Ambassador Maul. My question has to do with the way you see the uh, conclusion and the implementation of the JCPOA affecting the broader regional security dialogue, especially vis-a-vis -vis Syria and the low to which Iran-Saudi relations have sunk. Thank you. Um, well, uh, that's a little bit out of, uh, out of my lane. Uh, I'm, I assure you I'm busy enough on implementing this deal uh, to, to, have to, to, to say nothing of wading into the Syria problem. Uh, but I can say that uh, 
Uh, we do look to engage with Iran in a multilateral way uh, with Saudi Arabia and, uh, and others in the region. There's a meeting at, uh, tomorrow. Uh, Secretary Kerry is going to be chairing a session of the Security Council uh, on uh, this issue. On the deal itself, uh, I think it's no secret that, uh, you know, similar to Israel, there were other countries in the region who had uh, concerns about would this deal uh, be, uh, there's an active debate about whether this deal would help make the region more secure. Uh, we were very gratified uh, at the end of the debate that the GCC, for example, endorsed it as a, uh, as a positive step forward and, and uh, agreed to be uh, good partners uh, of us in, uh, in making sure that it's implemented. Uh, we also are very sensitive to their security needs as we are to Israel's and uh, we view very much in our interest as we go forward with this deal that we continue to bolster uh, the security, improve the ability of our friends to deter uh, potential aggression from Iran uh, through an expanded security assistance program that we're discussing with the GCC states as well as, uh, as, well as with Israel. So um, I wouldn't say that uh, by far from it. We're not in any kind of crisis uh, with our friends uh, in the region. I think we have a good dialogue with them, and, uh, and so far they've been supportive. Steve, maybe I could just intrude with one question, picking up on what Trudy had to say. I think we're all aware of the fact that within the JCPOA, uh, there is a portion that says essentially that Iran has the right or reserves the right uh, to withdraw if uh, sanctions previously lifted are reimposed. I think that's not an exact phraseology, but it's close enough. Mm -hmm. uh, we now face 1929, uh, a statement in the UN uh, experts that this is a violation, uh, a sense on the part of the US just conveyed by you that there should be consequences for that. Um, if we were to move as we might uh, in uh, denominating specific individuals in the missile program responsible for the test or related to the test, uh, would this be seen on the Iranian side as the reimposition of sanctions, particularly if some of these individuals had already been sanctioned and released by the JCPOA? Uh, and would that be, in the view of the United States, justified? Or are we going to avoid, hopefully, the kind of, put it this way, inadvertent collision that might result in a sanctioning to take place, in our view, quite legitimately, but interpretable on their side with some plausibility uh, as being the old sanctions back in new clothing? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, one of the things I learned very early on in my career is to avoid answering hypothetical questions. Uh, so I'm going to try and heed that, uh, heed that advice that somebody, Do your best. <laughs> somebody gave me. Uh, but I, I think you know, there, we've been very clear about this, certainly through the negotiation yeah. process, as well as publicly, that this deal and the sanctions relief that flow, that will flow from it, uh, is uh, specifically focused on the nuclear program and nothing else. And nothing about this deal, nothing about the granting of sanctions relief on the nuclear sanctions uh, implied any softening of any other intent uh, to apply other sanctions authorities when warranted, whether it's through uh, uh, missile launches or human rights violations or acts of terrorism, uh, uh, the, the whole uh, list of things uh, uh, for which we have sanctions authorities uh, on uh, Iran. Um, 
if you know, there have been voices in Iran that have said uh, that this deal means no new sanctions may be applied, which is a complete uh, uh, misinterpretation of what we've been very clear about uh, throughout uh, this process. Ultimately, um, we believe that this deal in granting relief from uh, the sanctions that Iran will benefit from uh, when it gets to implementation day uh, should be providing ample incentive, uh, regardless of what happens in these other tracks, uh, to, uh, to, to go forward with Iran's uh, full, uh, uh, full implementation. But obviously, you know, we have our job to do in terms of protecting their interests, and they have theirs to do, and, and they'll have to make that determination. We want the deal to succeed, though. Let make no, make no mistake about that. And that's an important point. Thank you. Back here in the middle, is it Nelson? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ambassador. Uh, Nelson Cunningham, McClarty Associates. One of the great ironies, of course, is that even though the U.S. led the way toward this deal, the sanctions relief, uh, when it comes, will benefit American businesses almost not at all compared to European businesses, Chinese, Turkish, Indian, uh, any other part of the world. Um, how do you see that influencing uh, the next phases of this? Do you see political pressure being applied on one way or the other to change the congressionally mandated sanctions regime that are not touched by this agreement? Uh, the short answer is I, I, I think it's too early to tell, and that's not a cop-out. It, really uh, it really is too early to tell. I think uh, um, in response to, to an earlier question, I was mentioning that as we get farther along the road, uh, of this agreement, particularly beyond uh, implementation day, um, it, you know, let's say a year afterward, we're going to have uh, a, a pretty clear idea: is this working? Uh, is uh, Iran implementing its part of the bargain in a good faith way? Uh, are we? doing what we promised to do in terms of uh, re relieving the sanctions. And it's a gamble. Who knows how this is going to turn out? But if it goes well, uh, it could create uh, more good faith on both sides, I think. What political result that good faith can contribute to, I, 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 I can't say. We're coming into what looks like it's going to be a very contentious election year uh, here in the United States. Uh, I, as uh, Senator Menendez reminded me this morning, uh, the Iran Sanctions Act, one of the many uh, pieces of uh, sanctions authority that uh, the U.S. government has, is coming up for renewal at the end of, uh, of 2016. Uh, su uh, supporters of that agreement have indicated that they would like uh, to move sooner rather than later uh, to um, renew that. I'm sure when the Congress is called to decide that question, they will look at, you know, is this going to help implementation or will it uh, hurt it and, uh, and, and decide accordingly? So um, I don't know. Ask, ask me six months from now. I could probably give you a clearer answer. Please. Trita, thanks. Ambassador, thank you so much, and thanks to the Atlantic Council for putting on this excellent program. Uh, I want to go back to a question that Barbara raised regarding the visa waiver program. Um, as I think you also testified this morning, Europeans have a rather different interpretation. Uh, the critics of this include the European governments who have a rather categorical view that this is a uh, violation of the deal. Now, mindful of the fact that this language was put in last minute into this bill, Mindful of the fact that the intent is to offset any attempt by ISIS to be able to reach the United States, which then makes it rather curious that Iran is included in this, but Saudi Arabia and Pakistan is not. How confident can we be that the intent of this, as you mentioned, is not to derail 
uh, normal uh, trade relations. Not, not to derail normal trade relations with Iran. Thank you. Well, I, uh, the, really, the definitive answer to that question will be provided by the people who drafted the legislation and who are piloting it, piloting it through, the, uh, uh, through the Congress. Um, but as I read about it in the press and, and, and talk to uh, uh, members of Congress who've been uh, behind this, uh, I've not uh, detected that, uh, that, that, that closing off access to Iran is a motive that they are applying uh, for their uh, so, you know, rightly or wrongly, if this legislation is the right way forward, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a position to say that. Uh, but uh, you know, they're claiming that that's not part of their uh, uh, part of their motive. Um, Iran isn't even really mentioned. I mean, it's, it's really as a state sponsor of terrorism. It's through that uh, that Iran uh, has found itself uh, in the crosshairs. Uh, well, it's not even in the crosshairs. It's just because it's designated as a state sponsor of terrorism that it's included in the scope of the legislation. Uh, one way to uh, escape, if there's a country that wants to get out of this uh, restriction, is don't be a state sponsor of terrorism. And uh, that's certainly one uh, uh, easy way to, uh, uh, to fix it. But you're right, Trita, they're, 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 it's not just the Iranians who are complaining about this legislation. Our, our European partners are uh, as, as well. Way, way in the back, please. Edward Levine, Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. You know, as a former staffer of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I think we trained you for this job, Ambassador, by giving you such a hard time on arms sales. So you should have no trouble with this. <laughs> I want to ask a two-pronged technical question. There are several parts of the JCPOA in which the detailed modalities are not spelled out. And presumably, those have to be arranged by implementation day. And I wonder how that is going and how well the United States government can keep track of this in a situation in which going forward, there will not be American inspectors involved in the process. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Ed. It's great, uh, great to see you again. I remember very well our meetings uh, together back uh, when I worked uh, uh, when I worked in PM. Uh, yeah, there are uh, there, there was there were a couple of pieces of unfinished business uh, when the deal uh, was completed uh, back uh, back in July. Uh, one of them, for example, is that uh, there needs to be an agreement about uh, uh, few, the, as Iran gets into the out years of the agreement, uh, what it will be allowed in terms of de developing centrifuges. What do those centrifuges? look like, what will their outputs be, uh, and so we've been very intensely consulting at experts level. In fact, uh, uh, a sizable number of my colleagues are in uh, Vienna today for another round of, uh, of discussions on this, and I think we're very, very close uh, to agreement on, uh, on, on closing that, uh, uh, that, that particular gap. So we should have uh, that in place, and then there's the sanctions guidance, uh, you know, it wasn't written yet at the time of the uh, conclusion of the deal, but, uh, but it will be, that will be finished in the next uh, uh, couple of weeks as well. Uh, we also need to, uh, you know, Iran committed to reduce its uh, enriched uranium stockpile to below 
300 kilograms. Uh, we anticipate that in the coming weeks it will, it will cross that threshold. They're definitely picking up speed on this, but not all of the details have been uh, uh, sorted out yet. I have every confidence they will be. We've been working very hard with the IAEA and our other partners in the P5 plus one to do it, and uh, that, that will be resolved. In terms of uh, having confidence in the IAEA's results, uh, you're right. Uh, we're not going to be sending American inspectors uh, to Iran uh, anytime soon. Uh, but uh, we've had such a long and rich history of technical cooperation uh, and training and providing equipment uh, to the IAEA. Uh, uh, it's really one of the things that's impressed me most of all since I started on this job in September uh, is how closely uh, we work with the IAEA and a truly professional uh, and group of people with very high standards. Uh, we, we have full confidence they're up to this job. Steve, will you take one more? Sure. This is the last question. If there is one out there, Yes, right over here, please. Thank you very much. Um, Cornelius Adebar with the Carnegie Endowment. Um, I will go in uh, for the easy questions. Um, it's, it's not hypothetical, but it is about the future. Um, as the head of the Iran Task Force, when do you believe to be taking a trip to Iran for the first time? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> when will you I You see, go to Iran? it's so easy. Gee. When do you think you will be taking a trip to Iran? Well, I, I'd love to go to Iran someday, but uh, I, I don't think that'll be happening by Christmas. Uh, so. <laughs> Thanks for that. Steve, uh, let me thank you very much for both a great talk, uh, setting the stage so beautifully, and for your long and patient perseverance with the questions. It comes at the end of a day, and I've been there with you in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in one of those endless hearings where they never seem to be able to find the end. Uh, and then having to come up here and do double duty is well beyond uh, the cause of uh, both human rights and government <laughs> service. So let me thank you most sincerely in the behalf of all of us, the Iran Project, the Atlantic Council, the sponsors. It's a delight to have you. Let me also say uh, we've always known you've been a quick study, and you are a brilliant quick study. You've been in this job a comparatively short time. Your mastery of the subject, your ability to discern and present uh, the material in a way that is clearly persuasive and well understood is in many respects uh, a perfect ratification of the Secretary's decision to choose you for this job. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.